morning. That was booming. Sound booming. Um, well, I'm, I'm Joe Mueller, for those of you who don't know me. I'm one of the, the elders here at Remedy, um, and it is my privilege uh, to preach from God's Word uh, to us today. So if, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is where we will be uh, today. So uh, we are just coming out of a little section where we have examined um, Paul's dealing with food offered to idols. Uh, three weeks we spent here taking us all the way from 8.1 to 11.1. And in that time we saw that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we saw this as a call away from incomplete head knowledge only. A knowledge that crumbles to the ground under examination because it lacks love. And we've been called away from that sort of knowledge to a knowledge steeped in the rich language of love for both God and our neighbor. And in chapter 9, Paul anticipated from the Corinthian church uh, many objections to this radical love of God and neighbor that Paul is calling them to when it comes to eating meat, sacrifice to idols. And he furnishes his own life, himself, how he treated the Corinthian church as an example of what love looks like in public. He outlined the extent to which he had gone to ensure that they could hear the gospel from him. Showing us that love gives up its rights, it suffers hardships, and love bends over backwards for the good, for the sake, for the benefit of the other. And then shouldn't then, Paul's reasoning continues, shouldn't then the Corinthians do the exact same thing to keep a brother from rejecting the way and eating at an idol's temple? In, in outlining his sacrifice in chapter 9, Paul is not throwing a pity party for himself, asking everyone to feel bad about Paul. Look at all the things that Paul did. Because Paul was after something. He was after something in all of giving up of his rights. He wasn't writing the, the, the extensive list of what he did so that he could secure provision or money or, or anything from the Corinthian church. Because he was after a reward. His love, his laying down his life for the Corinthian church was after something for Paul himself. He says in 9.17, For I do this, I give up all my rights of my own will if. For if I do this, give up all my rights of my own will, I have a reward. That is why Paul gave it all up, so that he would have a reward. Like a fierce competitor, he was training to win. And not only just win, because he wanted to win, he wanted to complete the race, but he also was training not to be disqualified as well. He says in 9.27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So disqualified, that's a big word. And Paul opens chapter 10, he says, for I, do not want, or sorry, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all baptized. I'm having some ellipses here. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now the question 
for us today is, do you know anyone who has been baptized and who eats spiritual food and drinks spiritual drink? That should be uh, very clear to all of us that that is us. We are those people today. And in chapter 10, Jack showed us four things members of the ancient church succumbed to in the wilderness and disqualified themselves from entering God's promised rest. He talked about idolatry and sexual immorality and impatience and discontentment. The first two are those outward expressions of idolatry, the manifestations of man playing at the deep things of God. The second two are related to idolatry in that they are the fount of all men's attempts to erect a temple in the plain of Shinar and to ascend to God's heights. They are the beginnings of Babel in each of our hearts. But the church of God ought to flee from idolatry. All four of these things we should flee, both the manifestations and the founts, because you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And this is important for us today because we're going to be talking about the table of the Lord. Members of the visible church can, like the Israelites in the desert, abandon their faith and be destroyed. Paul's conclusion to his section on food offered to idols is this. Love your neighbor and live your life with an eye on the prize even as you do something as simple as eating meat. For whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31, and be imitators of me, meaning Paul, as I am of Christ, from 1 Corinthians 11.1. Now, that's the review. Paul is about to open up a brand new section in chapter 11. Brand new. It's going to go all the way from 11.2 all the way to 14.40, and there's going to be three additional topics that are going to fall under this broad category of church order. The first two we'll cover today, and they are head coverings when we pray, and they are the Lord's Supper. And so that will take us all the way from Paul's commendation where he says, Now I commend you uh, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. All the way to Paul's command, but all things should be done decently and in order. So again, we're going to cover head coverings in the Lord's Supper and then the several weeks after that we'll cover spiritual gifts. So if you would stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word, we'll be in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has, her, has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. And let's pray. So, Father, this is a difficult text. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use this time to instruct us in your truth, that you would guard us from error, that you would lead us into holiness, into truth, that you would enliven our hearts in worship as we uh, uh, comprehend your truth. And, Lord, we pray that uh, Jesus would be magnified and glorified by us today. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So there, there are two uh, distinct parts of this chapter. I'm sure we all picked up on that in the reading. Um, and as such, this will make what we're doing today a little um, two-phase. Two there will be two parts to it, the Lord's Supper and head coverings, but in the opposite order. Um, but I want to pose a question before we get started. And the question is, does any of this matter? Right? Does it matter how a woman prays, whether something's on her head or not? Does it matter 
if a man prays in the way that the woman is supposed to pray? Does it matter if somebody eats a little bit more at the Lord's table than other people? Does it matter that some don't wait for other people to show up to come to the table together? Is it important? And uh, I think all of us, if we're here today, we would say, yeah, it's important because it's in the Bible, right? Like that's, that's the, the answer that we've all been taught. But it's really important, and I want us to take a step back and just consider, consider that there are people who think it doesn't matter. And so our goal today is to figure out why does this matter? Why is this important? What do I need to learn about the way God made the world and the way I'm supposed to live in the world from what we have to look at today? So why does this matter? That's the question I want all of us to be thinking as we go through. But so let's start jumping in. Head coverings. So after commending the Corinthian church, saying they're doing a good job, he's saying, hey guys, you're doing great. You're, you're remembering me and all the things that I gave you with this oral tradition that I passed down. I told you how to have a church service. And I'm hearing from reports of people that you are doing, you're doing church, right? You're doing it. That's great. I'm so happy about that. But then he follows up immediately with a but. And, and a lot of times in, in, in common parlance, right, if somebody says something nice, but then they say but, right, they really, they really just wanted to say the negative thing. I don't think Paul is doing that here. Um, he really wanted to say a good thing to them. But he follows up with a but. And this but is going to be the theog- theological key that will help us unlock all the things about head coverings that you could ever dream or imagine that you wanted to know. And, the, and it's this, in verse 3 it says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And as we look into the argument that will follow, this is the linchpin that holds everything together. This is a statement that without which none of what Paul is saying makes any sense whatsoever. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man and the husband. And the man is the head of of the woman or the wife. The context of this is probably marriage. Now, uh, before we can go any further, I need to make two very important, like, asides or caveats. The first is about the Trinity. First is about the Trinity. Um, It says, the head of Christ is God. What does this mean, that the head of Christ is God? God is the head of Christ, not in relation to the essence of, of Jesus, right? Jesus is equal in every respect uh, to the Father, to the Spirit. He is the same essence. The Son is equal to the Father in what theologians call ad intra, or the internally working of the Godhead. So like among the Godhead, they are completely and utterly equal. The Father and the Son and the Spirit share the same dignity the same power, the same glory, the same will, the same goodness, the same majesty, the same holiness, and the same authority with each other. And so what does it mean then that Christ, the head of Christ, is God? So in in the Son, the Son is the second person of the Trinity, and the Son has a very special office. 
he has the office of the mediator. And what this means is that God in the second person came down and took on a human body. And in that human body, he had a goal. He had an aim. He had a purpose. And that was to stand in the gap between men, his brothers, and God. And so this, this office of mediator is what theologians call ad extra, right? Or as it relates to how the different members of the Godhead work out in the world around them. And so when Jesus says something like this from John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. He is speaking of the external workings of the Trinity in the world, and specifically about his role as mediator between God and man. Not how the Trinity relates to each other amongst themselves for all of eternity, but only in how Jesus acts as the Savior of the world. How it looks to us. And so Jesus in this statement is affirming the headship of God over him in his humanity. Demonstrating to us all what it means to live with God as our head. And herein is the other important sort of a caveat or aside, right? We don't want to confuse the Trinity and say that there's some eternal subordination between the Father and the Son. Because that's a, a confusion because they are of the same essence, the same will, the same everything. The other one is a distinction between man and woman, uh, what, what's called an ontological caveat. Uh, the head of a wife is her husband. So ontology is just your essence. Who are you in your being? What are you? And, and this, this is important for us to consider because um, when we compare Paul's statement here that the head of a wife is her husband, and we compare with something like Colossians 3.28, Right, which says, uh, or starting in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So in Paul's statement that the head of a wife is her husband, there seems to be man sort of put in between Jesus, the head of his church, and the woman, and the wife. But that is not, uh, so, so we've got to be clear about what's being talked about here. And uh, what is happening is what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying is not, it's not saying that the husband man is spiritually or essentially or ontologically superior or in a place of authority over the woman. Because that would be a contradiction of the scriptures, right? There is neither male nor female in the church. Spiritually speaking, all are the same before God. All are in need of Christ. And to God, putting on Christ is all that matters. But, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is saying something about the relationship between men and women. He is. Um, here on earth, though. And not in their essential nature and value, but in their earthly station. Men are, are in a place of authority where they are required by the stipulations of the covenant of marriage to lay down their lives for the wife. You are called to die, men, for your wife. You are called to nurture and grow her in holiness, peace, justice, and truth. You are to develop her and invest in her and give of yourself to her. 
And you are to serve the needs of her body as though they were the needs of your own body. That is what it means for you to be her head. And so too, the wife must look to the husband for leadership and for care while serving him as a co-inheritor of the promise of life and helping him execute his dominion over all of creation. So two caveats aside, right? Men and women are equal before God, but they do have different functions here on earth. And that will be, uh, we'll see why that is. And then the Trinity is equal in honor among the members of the Godhead. But in Jesus, he had a special mission in which he submitted as a man his will to God and lived as an example for us. So now the actual instructions, so four and six, the, the distinctions of gender or sex, is, um, depending on how you like to talk about that. In the actual instructions, it would seem as though what is most important in four through six is maintaining this functional distinction between men and women. So if, if you notice here, every man, verse 4, who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his, his head. So this would be a man praying in the mode or fashion of a woman, as one who has a symbol of authority on her head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. This would be the woman praying like a man, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul's instructions seem to be saying, in the circumstances of their prayer, a man ought, to pray, ought not to pray like a woman, and a woman ought not to pray like a man. Each should occupy the place for which they were created. So if there is a manner of dress or external adornment in our culture, that is associated with women, a man ought not to dress or adorn himself in a similar fashion when he prays. And if there is a manner of dress or external adornment in our culture that is associated with men, a woman ought not to dress or adorn herself in a similar fashion when she prays. The functional distinction between the genders or sexes ought to be maintained in the assembly of the church. We're supposed to do things in an orderly manner. But why? Why does it matter? What is the point? So in, in 7 through 10, Paul is giving an explanation of why it matters. For a man, in verse 7, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. So Paul is grounding his instruction in creation. Why was woman made? She was made for man. Who was woman made for? Woman was made from man, right? In the, taking us back to Genesis 2 and the creation of all humankind. Paul is interpreting this creational account as creating a creational order. An order that has existed from the very beginning of time and will uh, be consummated in the resurrection where we won't have this type of relationship with each other any longer. Uh, and, and Paul is providing this commentary. And he is saying that this, what I'm describing to you today in my letter to you, is how the world is supposed to work. The husband is to be the head of his wife. That is why, because of God's purpose in creation, 
a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head or authority on her head. Um, the authority on her head is to be an act of submission to the God who created her. Not to man, uh, but to the God who created her. Nevertheless, Paul continues in verse 11, the woman is the, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of the woman. For as woman was made from man, so now, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So in the midst of all this headship talk, Paul doesn't want any of it to get to the head <laughs> um, of men or of women. We are all dependent on each other. And all of it, all of your life, all of my life, all of the lives that we create as husband and wife, every bit of it comes from God. And this should remind us of two very important ways of living in marriage from 1 Peter chapter 3. Starting with husbands in, in verse 7, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the weaker woman or to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands, men, we are to live with our wives in such a way that we honor them, that we lift them up, that we build them up, that we create a life for them that, that brings them joy and happiness. And if you are a man who is married, are you honoring the wife God has given you in this way? Are you laying down your life for her? Are you caring for her and cherishing her and holding true to her in sickness and in health, in good times and in poor, like you promised? Are you understanding the role God has given her? One where a man such as you is her head. And are you living a life that is for her? Are you living with your life, wife, in an understanding way, showing her honor? In women, this is from 1 Peter 3, 4 through 6. So just the preceding verses. It, it, we, this should ask us, are, are you letting your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit? Which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So women, do you accept the role God has given to you? Not because your husband is better or smarter or wiser or more fit than you, but because God is the one who has given that station to you in life. Do you seek your husband's good in good times and in bad like you promised? Do you seek to serve him? Do you submit to your own husband? Now, I'm, I'm sure some of the ladies in the audience are asking, but do I have to cover my head to pray today? I'm sure that's a burning question on everybody's heart. Um, and the short of it is, I don't think so, but if you feel convicted too, wear head covering. It's fine. It's good. It's not bad. It's not wrong uh, if you feel like your conscience won't let you. But here's why I don't think so. Uh, we don't lo live in a culture where the manner of dress or external adornment associated with a woman is to have her head covered. 
just don't live in that world anymore. Um, that's sort of my view here. And, and why do I talk about culture, though? Why is culture something that I'm appealing to uh, from God's word? But, uh, I think it's because Paul appeals to it in verse 6. Uh, for if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul is appealing to the cultural practice of the Corinthians at the time, saying that, hey, if you guys think that it's bad for a woman to shave her head, to, for it not to be covered, then she should probably cover her head. Uh, short hair, uncovered heads, these are, were the cultural signifiers of manhood in the Corinthian church. It's what a man has. Uh, and since these were not sinful in and of themselves, right, it's not sinful in and of themselves to have short hair, they stood in for symbols of what it meant to be a man. They're just symbols. They're, they're what's called fungible, right? Uh, if a different culture has different symbols, that's okay. Uh, but also in, in this uh, culture, long hair and covered heads, these were the cultural signifiers of womanhood in the Corinthian world. Think even in, in Roman marriage, right, they would cover their heads once they get married. That's what signified that a, a woman was married. Uh, they, I don't think they had, they had rings like we do today. And since these were not sinful, the covering of the head or the long hair is not sinful in and of itself, they stood in for the symbols of what it meant to be a woman. And so this all makes sense as, as Paul closes, or so I think, right? Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does it not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we do not, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So here it is in summary fashion. When we come to pray, we should have in mind our position in creation, either male or female. Even in our adornment, we should be aware of this distinction. Trusting God that he is in charge of it all, and has given us our particular station in life. So, uh, the homework, right? This is, this is what I want us to go out and think from here today in relation to this passage. Is why does that matter? Why, what does it teach you about what it means to be male or female, man or woman, especially in marriage? And what drives your identity in this world? What you adorn yourself with or what you were created in the womb of your mother, man or woman in the womb of your mother to be. Who gets the final say in your station in life, God or yourself? And how does the way you adorn yourself communicate your acceptance of your position, of your station in life? So now let's shift gears. To the Lord's Supper. This is going to take us from 17 to 34. And a brand new issue, still related to what's called church order. How, how do we do things in an orderly, dignified way in the church? Um, but there are two main dysfunctions that are affecting the church here in Corinth. The first is that the, the Corinthian church is full of factions. We already saw this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We saw a little bit of it in chapter 9, uh, chapter 5. I mean, basically, it's all over the place. Um, and so at verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. 
For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that factions existed, I think, is plain. But what is interesting here, what Paul adds to the equation is that these factions, which have been elevating individuals above others because of some man-made criteria, it doesn't matter what the criteria was, but some man-made criteria was elevating a teacher or a group of people or, or somebody above other people. It's already been rejected in several places. This is just another one. But in, in talking about factions, Paul says this, right? He says, there must be factions among you in order that you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So how do the existence of factions uh, prove that the, who the genuine believers are? How does it do that? And, and I think the answer is because the genuine people reject the factions. The genuine people have nothing to do with it. And, and this church is always relevant to us, always, no matter the context, no matter the day, but especially this weekend. This is incredibly relevant to us, church. We should be rejecting the cults of celebrity, the preferences for association with persons of certain social class, and we should be rejecting racism of every stripe in our country, and in our world. We should have no part of it. We should condemn it whenever we see it. We should be bold. We should be the people who stand up and speak. Because our Lord is a God who has erased all factions. Our Lord is the one who has brought us all together into his family and into his people. And he makes no distinction among us but invites us all to come to him. And so we should always be rejecting these things. We should always be rejecting racism and classism and celebrity. And the first issue was that of factions. That was the problem with the Corinthian church. Now the second issue is what I'm calling the, the faux supper. Apparently faux is one of my favorite words. But the faux supper so he says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's a, that's a, that's a really, that should be a painful dig if anyone ever says that to us. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That should, that should cut us to our core. Verse 21, he says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. His own, his his own meal. So it's not even the Lord's meal that you're eating. You're just eating your own food. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So that this faux supper, this, this false supper that they're eating, Paul uses the words his own meal, not the Lord's meal. And the issue appears that some members of the congregation, some people in the church, 
They were eating before other people had a chance to show up. What jerks, right? They, they just started the Lord's Supper without anybody else. These people were probably the rich people who didn't have to work that day. And so they could show up on time. And they were hungry. They were like, ah, I'm hungry. Let's start eating now. And so they would consume a good bit of the wine and the bread. And they were treating the Lord's Supper more like a pagan sacrifice, right? The pagan sacrifice where everyone goes and throws a big party. They, they kill a, uh, an animal and, and then they all eat and, and fill their bellies and like, oh, yeah. Um, they were treating the Lord's table like it was a pagan sacrifice where what was God was your belly and how much you could consume. And as a result, they left people out and they went hungry. They couldn't even take of the table or drink of the cup. And can you sense a bit of Paul's fury in this? This body that Jesus laid down for others. You don't even leave enough to share with your brother. He says, verse 22, or do you despise the church of God, the bride of Christ, those for whom Christ died? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Now, the theological thrust of Paul's correction against these factions and against his foe supper, his remedy for the church despising behavior, for this church despising behavior, what is his remedy? The words of institution, right? He, he, he tells the people what happened the night that Jesus was betrayed, and that is supposed to cure all these ills. It's supposed to provide the salve to factions. It's supposed to provide the balm to eating your own meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The words of Jesus demonstrate something profoundly personal here. This is my body, which is for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood, there is something of Jesus in the supper. And to deny this to people is evil. And it's not only in the words of Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, but it's in his actions that Jesus conveys the intense and emotional personal character that Jesus is trying to be with us in the supper. Jesus took the bread. Jesus gave thanks. Jesus broke it and distributed it to his disciples. In the same way, he also took the cup and passed it around so that they could have a drink. In the supper, the whole congregation, all the disciples, are fed by Jesus with Jesus. In fact, the Lord's Supper should have a unifying effect on the people of God as we gather around the fount of every blessing 
1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So as we gather to feast, we are drawn into the same body. And why would you exclude anyone from that body? Because we are all fellow members. We are all participating with Jesus in the supper, and we are participating with each other. So what happens when we get this wrong? When we fail to forsake the factions and eat our own meal during the Lord's Supper? What happens when we don't discern the body and the blood of our Lord? Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The unworthy manner mentioned here is pointing back to the two issues just described. The factions and the foe supper. And Paul is saying that there has been temporal judgment on the church in Corinth because of these two reasons. Some are weak and ill, and some have died or fallen asleep, as it is said of believers who die in the Lord. All because of the manner with which they took the Lord's Supper. All because they chose to not discern the body and blood of our Lord. And so to end, I want us to go back to verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So what does it mean for us to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? There are some details that we proclaim. We, uh, the church has for a long time confessed this. They, the church has said that I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. These are the details of the proclamation of our Lord's death. Those are the essentials, the broad categories, the big picture. But why? Why did any of this have to happen? Why do we confess that these things occurred in history? Why did they occur in history? Why did God send his son? Because we were lost in our sin. And that seed of death that was within us because of Adam, our federal head, we were doomed to destruction. And because all of us, from our first breath, pursued sin, 
and dishonored God and followed Adam in his folly. And we were enemies of God. And we were objects of wrath. And we were doomed to destruction. And there was no hope in ourselves to be able to, to do enough, to work hard enough to wash away the stain of our sin. So Jesus came, and he lived that perfect life, and he died that perfect death on the cross, so that all who might believe in him might have everlasting life. And so the question today is, do you believe in him? Have you trusted in him? Have you put your faith and your hope in him and what he has done for you on the cross? But I also want to talk a little bit about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, because that's how I want to end it today. The first thing that he accomplished is he earned for himself praise and honor and glory for all time. Every knee will bow to Jesus because of what he's done. He also opened the way for all men to come to him. Doesn't matter what rank you are. Doesn't matter what class you are. Doesn't matter what job you have. Doesn't matter where you were born or who you were born to. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Doesn't matter anything. Not even the content of your character matters. Because you can't be good enough to get to God. You can't climb the ladder fast enough. He has made a way for all men to come to him. The lowliest to the greatest. The richest to the poorest. The most evil to the most good of us. All of us can come to Jesus. And finally, he built a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation from all races of men, from all classes of people, from all genders, male and female. He has built us all together. And so in a moment here, we're going to come and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. If you are a baptized believer, Jordan, you can come on up. If you are a baptized believer in, in Christ, I invite you to the table. Come eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Come participate in the body and blood of our Lord. But I, I, wanna, I want us to think about what we're going to be saying today because uh, we, God says much to us in the supper. We say some things together individually back to God, but then as a church, as a church we say things. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what that means today, what that means for us, is that as we come to the table, we are renouncing racism. We are renouncing classism. We are renouncing genderism. We are renouncing patriarchy. Right? We are renouncing all of these evils that humans set up against each other. And we are saying to each other and to the world, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. These factions, these things that divide us are no more in Christ. We can all come together from all walks of life, and we can be united in Christ. So in a second here, we're going to start singing and uh, come to the table. Uh, I'll come back up and lead us in taking the elements and remember what we are declaring to the world as we, we take of the bread and drink of the cup. We are declaring that Jesus is Lord and that he is everything and he has united us together.